You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. Today we're going to start off with a recipe for sweet potato breakfast tacos from goop.com. Savory breakfasts can be tricky on detox because they tend to rely heavily on eggs and bread, which are delicious but not a great fit for this reset. A sweet potato taco, however, fits the bill. It's super savory, quick to make, and playfully uses some of our favorite Middle Eastern ingredients in taco form. This serves two. You need two tablespoons of avocado oil, one large sweet potato, diced small, kosher salt, one teaspoon of za'atar, one quarter red onion, thinly sliced, one half teaspoon of sumac, four to six grain-free tortillas. We like the siete cassava tortillas, avocado tahini dip, and to serve lemon wedges and cilantro. First, you're going to heat a nonstick skillet over medium heat, add the avocado oil, sweet potatoes, and a pinch of salt. Cook, stirring frequently for about 10 to 12 minutes or until the sweet potatoes become browned on the outside and fork tender. Add the za'atar and let cook for another minute or so and then remove from the heat. While the potatoes cook, toss the thinly sliced onions with a sumac and a pinch of salt and set aside. To assemble the tacos, warm the tortillas, either in a pan or over an open flame if you prefer a little char, and then swipe each tortilla with the avocado tahini sauce, then top with a mound of sweet potatoes. Finish with some of the sumac red onions, a squeeze of lemon, and cilantro. Tip on this one, this would also work well with butternut squash instead of sweet potatoes. Next, we're going to go to a recipe from smittenkitchen.com for cauliflower and tomato masala with with peas. Good afternoon from vacation. This is from Smitten Kitchen, so that's Deb on vacation. We don't need to talk about it. If you told me you were on a sunny beach with fine white silky sand between your toes, fluffy aqua waves lapping at the edges, and palm trees swishing back and forth, scooping aqua chiles onto tortilla chips, and marveling at the range of available papaya hues while I was shoveling out snow for the nth time this year, I would smile politely and comment how amazing on your Instagram, but I would silently pout as I probably will be a week from now. Oh, let's not. A week or so before I left, because the treadmill seems as good a place as any to think about what you want to eat next, I was overwhelmed with a craving for cauliflower cooked in a spicy tomato sauce. Gobi Matar Masala, which is cauliflower, peas, and spices, is a classic vegan North Indian recipe that fit the bill. The dotting of sweet peas adds a wonderful complimentary taste. And when I came home and started looking through books and websites for recipes, I realized that it's more often a dry curry made with a few tomatoes, but most of the liquid evaporates, leaving a more concentrated mixture. The first time I made it this way, and it was fantastic, but my craving for a saucier version, more of a sabzi, if I understand correctly, remained. 
A friend confirmed that like most traditional dishes, there is no one agreed upon way to make it. And some days you may want to add a few more, a little bit more like stew than other days. Feeling liberated, the next time I made it, I added a few cups of canned tomato puree. and It was exactly what I'd hoped for. We ate it with rice, but it would also be delicious with chapati, roti, or another flatbread. There is a lot of flexibility here. You can keep the cauliflower more crisp or let it relax more in the masala, depending on your preference. You can use more or less tomatoes, depending on how saucy you want the dish. You can crank up the heat with more chiles or chile powder. My kids aren't quite there yet. And if you're missing a single spice, I wouldn't sweat it. I took some of the uh, most common spices used, but then went recipe-free, just cooking and adjusting to taste and jotting everything down, dutiful food blogger that I am. It was cozy and unheavy and perfect. I froze the leftovers and can't wait to have at least one meal all squared away when we get home. Here's the recipe. Cauliflower and tomato masala with peas, or also known as gobi matar. This serves four and it takes 45 minutes. If you'd like to brown your cauliflower florets for a more nuanced flavor, you can do so in additional tablespoon or two of oil in the beginning with your frying pan on high heat. Scoop it out and set it aside before beginning the recipe as written. Once you add the cauliflower to the tomato sauce later in the recipe, you might need five minutes less cooking time to get it to a good consistency. I aim for tender but not mushy here. Note, you can watch an Instagram story demo of this recipe over here, and there's a link at smittenkitchen.com. You'll need one large head of cauliflower, that's about three pounds, two tablespoons of vegetable or olive oil, one teaspoon of cumin seeds, one tablespoon of finely grated fresh ginger, one tablespoon of finely grated garlic, that's about two cloves, one jalapeno or another green chili finely chopped, use more or less to taste, and one big handful of fresh cilantro, stems finely chopped and leaves roughly torn. One half teaspoon of ground turmeric, one quarter to one teaspoon of mild red chili powder, I used kashmiri, adjusted to taste, one and a half teaspoons of ground coriander, one half teaspoon of garam masala, two to three cups of tomato puree from a 28 ounce can, one to two teaspoons of kosher salt, one cup water, one and a half cup green peas, frozen is fine, one half teaspoon of amchur, which is dried mango powder, or juice of a half a lemon, and rice or flatbreads to serve. First, you're going to prepare your cauliflower just to get it out of the way. Trim the leaves, remove the large core, and dice it into small one-quarter to half-inch pieces. Cut or break the florets into medium-sized chunks. Then, in a large deep saute pan, heat the oil over medium heat. And then once hot, add cumin seeds, ginger, garlic, and jalapeno, and cook together for three minutes until tender, but the garlic and ginger are not browned. Add diced cauliflower core and finely chopped cilantro stems, save the leaves for the end, and cook for one another one minute together. Add turmeric, chili powder, coriander, and garam masala, and cook for two minutes. Add two to three cups of tomato puree, 
Use the smaller amount if your cauliflower clocks into the two to two and a half pound range. If you're not sure you want your dish as saucy as mine is, plus salt, one and a half teaspoons was just right for my three cups of puree. And water, and then bring it to a simmer and cook for five minutes. Add cauliflower and stir to coat with sauce. Cover with a lid and cook for about 20 minutes until cauliflower is tender but not mushy, stirring occasionally. Add peas, still frozen or fine, and cook for 5 to 10 minutes until they're heated through. Add the amateur powder or lemon juice and stir to warm through. Taste the dish for seasoning and adjust to taste. And then finish with the cilantro leaves and serve with rice or flatbread. Deb's always got those good recipes. We're going to take another one from her for um, breakfast slab pie. This looks really interesting. Some looks to me like something you can make ahead, but we'll find out. I suspect by now that most of you are on your way to where you're headed physically and possibly proverbially. <laughs> Maybe you have a tree to cut down or some cookies to bake. You probably have a holiday party tonight and rooms to clean before guests arrive. This was uh, written on December 30th, many years ago. You no doubt have entertaining on your brain. We do too. We've had two dinner parties thus far this month. And instead of being exhausted of them, I want even more. This might be a sickness or maybe it's just realistic. For the price of dinner for two out, we can easily feed 15 at home where we don't have to deal with pesky restaurant minimums, the constant feeling that the clock is ticking as waiters are eager to turn the table over. We can actually speak to all of our friends. The reality of most big restaurant meals is that you can only talk to the people on either side of you. At home, musical chairs and shouting across tables is acceptable and encouraged. And, oh, I don't even put shoes on. Entertaining barefoot is where it's at, people. Trust me. Because I have entertaining on my brain, I got to thinking about what an epic cookathon many of us have headed have headed for us in the coming days, especially with formal Christmas Eve and Christmas Day dinners. What about house guests? Is one truly expected to cook after the off hours too? It sounds overwhelming. We don't have a lot of overnight house guests because A, we don't have a house or much spare space at all. B, we passive-aggressively discourage guests by not having a sleep a sofa, so shh, don't tell anyone. C, but of course you're totally welcome to stay here if you want a four-year-old climbing on your head at 5.45 a.m., asking you if you have the monster at the end of the story app on your phone for him to play with. Nevertheless, had I house guests, I know the last thing I'd feel like doing is making an epic breakfast spread only hours after cleaning up an epic dinner spread. Nor would I really want people messing up my kitchen while attempting to make their own breakfast, and flimsy grass at manners wouldn't allow me to let you go to the um, let you go to the local diner to feed yourself. So I got to thinking of some sort of mammoth one pan breakfast that everyone could help themselves to, heat up as needed or whenever they wake up. And that it could be somewhat portable, so maybe you could plop a square in a mittened hand before gently nudging your smaller guests out the door for for a while to go make a snowman or something. Politely, of course. And for this, I turn to the pie that saved Thanksgiving. That beloved slab pie. But here, it's savory. 
Here it's got some whole wheat flour and vegetables, spinach and potatoes, but also the essential bits, eggs and cheese. Or at least that was my approach. My husband, for one, felt that the absence of bacon was an appalling oversight. I personally prefer my bacon crisp and on the side. But I'm also imagining versions with more greens and feta or a Tex-Mex angle with black beans, salsa, cheese, and jalapenos. What you put in it is up to you, but what counts, what matters about this is that it's homemade, reheats beautifully, serves a crowd, and has an essential serve-yourself vibe to it for hosts that need a little break. It's your holiday too, and I hope you find time to put up your feet and cozy up with your favorite record on the turntable. Like I said, it looks great. So it basically looks like a pan of lasagna, but not as deep and nice and thick. And the, the cross section shows um, there's a pastry coating, top, sides, and bottom. And then inside the spinach and the eggs and the uh, potatoes. So, I mean, it sounds perfect. So here's the, here's the recipe, breakfast slab pie. This serves 12 generously or 15 petitely. For the crust, you'll need three and three quarters cups of all-purpose flour. Feel free to replace with up to half of whole wheat. And then you'll need one and a half teaspoons of table salt, three sticks of unsalted butter, very cold, three quarters cups of very cold water. For the filling, one pound of Yukon gold potatoes, peeled if desired and cut into one half inch slices. 10 ounces of baby, or grown-up frozen <laughs> spinach. I cup one cup of coarsely grated sharp cheddar cheese, four scallions thinly sliced, eleven large eggs, and one large egg white. You'll use the yolk in just a minute. Uh, one teaspoon of kosher or coarse sea salt, plus more to taste. Freshly ground black pepper. To finish, you'll need the one large egg yolk left over from the filling, and one teaspoon of water. Making the pie crust, you're going to whisk together flour and salt in the bottom of a large, wide-ish bowl, and then using a pastry blender, two forks, or your fingertips, work the butter into the flour until the biggest pieces of butter are the size of tiny peas. You'll want to chop your butter into small bits first, unless you're using a very strong pastry blender, in which case you can throw the sticks in whole as I do. Gently stir in the water with a rubber spatula, mixing it until a craggy mass forms, and then get your hands in the bowl and knead it just two or three times to form a ball. Divide the dough roughly in half, it's okay if one is slightly larger, and then wrap each half in plastic wrap and flatten it a bit like a disc. Chill in the fridge for at least an hour or up to two days, or slip plastic wrapped dough into a freezer bag and freeze for up to one to two months longer if you trust your freezer more than I do. And then to defrost, you're going to leave it in the fridge for one day. Still freaked out about making your own pie dough? Read this for a ton of additional tips and details, and there's a recipe at smittenkitchen.com slash breakfast slab pie. You can heat the oven to 375 degrees Fahrenheit and line the bottom of a 10 by 15 by 1 inch baking sheet or jelly roll pan with parchment paper. Then you're going to prepare the filling. You're going to place potatoes in a medium saucepan and cover with cold water and then bring to a boil. 
then reduce to a simmer and cook for seven to 10 minutes until potatoes are tender, but not falling apart. You want to drain those. You're going to wash the spinach, but no need to dry it. Place the wet spinach in a hot skillet and cook it until it just wilts. Then you're going to drain in a colander, pressing or squeezing out as much liquid as possible. You should have about one cup of spinach, one wilted and squeezed. If spinach leaves were large, you might want to roughly chop the squeezed out piles of spinach before adding it to the filling. Then you're going to assemble the pie. On a lightly floured surface, roll one of your dough halves, the larger one if you have two different sizes, onto, into an 18 by 13 inch rectangle. This can be kind of a pain because it is so large. Do your best to work quickly, keeping the dough as cold as possible and using enough flour that it doesn't stick to the counter. Transfer to your prepared baking sheet and gently drape some of the overhang ends so that the dough fills out the inner edges and corners. Some pastry will still hang over the sides of the pan and then you're going to trim this to a three-quarter inch overhang. Layer vegetables, including scallions, evenly over the bottom of the pie crust. You don't want your pie to look like this, after all. Um, and then sprinkle cheese on top. If using the fillings that I did, you're going to beat 11 whole eggs and one egg white lightly and pour over the vegetables. If you've used other fillings, you might find that you need more or fewer eggs to mostly fill. I didn't want to fill the, to the crust at the top with eggs, as it would have been more difficult to bake without filling the bottom crust. If you're nervous, just beat a few eggs at a time and pour them in until your filling reaches the desired level. Sprinkle with salt and many grinds of black pepper. Now you're going to roll out the second of your dough halves, the smaller one if they were different sizes, into a 16 by 11 inch rectangle. Drape the, over the filling and fold the bottom's crust um, overhang over the edges, sealing them together. Cut only a couple of tiny slits in the lid to act as vents. Too many or too big and the filling will want to leak out before the eggs set. Then you're going to beat in the remaining one egg yolk with one teaspoon of water and brush it over the lid. So you're going to bake the pie until the crust is golden and the filling is set. That'll take about 40 to 45 minutes. Transfer to a wire rack and cool a bit before cutting into squares. To do ahead, I haven't frozen this pie, but I suspect that it will freeze well already baked. Or you could make the pie doughs up to one month in advance, storing them in the freezer, and then four days in advance to store in the fridge, and then roll them out when you're ready to bake the pie. Baked slab pie will keep in the fridge for three to four days, and squares can be reheated as needed. Vegetables can be prepped, spinach wilted, potato parboiled, and stored in the fridge for two days before using. All right, we have time, I think, for one more recipe. Let's look into that. We're going to have a recipe for uh, best cocoa brownies, also from smittenkitchen.com. This is adapted from uh, Alice Medrick's Bittersweet, and it's one of the most popular brownie recipes on the internet and also this site. The other is My Favorite Brownies, and there's a link there. And no, you don't have to choose a side. This makes 16 larger or 25 smaller brownies, and it takes 45 minutes. I refreshed this recipe in 2016 
with new photos. Uh, and in the process of taking them, I couldn't resist streamlining the recipe just a little. Alice Medrick will never, ever steer you wrong in the kitchen, but she could not get me to melt butter in a puddle of simmering water on a skillet. Any way you prefer to gently melt butter works here, too. Or beat the batter vigorously for 40 strokes with a wooden spoon or a rubber spatula. The good news is that even if you're stubborn, you will still have excellent brownies to eat an hour from now. Some people liken these to a boxed mixed brownie, but way better. Depending on your feelings about boxed mixed brownies, this is a good or bad thing. We find them fudgy and dark and they never go to waste. Use the best cocoa you have because it provides all of the chocolate flavor here. It counts. All right, you'll need 10 tablespoons of unsalted butter, one and a half cups of granulated sugar, three quarters cups plus two tablespoons of unsweetened cocoa powder, natural or Dutch process, one quarter teaspoon salt or a heaping of one quarter teaspoon flaky salt as I used, one half teaspoon of pure vanilla extract, two large eggs, cold, one half cup of all-purpose flour, and two-thirds cup of walnut or pecan pieces. This is optional. Position a rack in the lower third of the oven and preheat the oven to 325 degrees Fahrenheit. Line the bottom and sides of an 8 by 8 inch square baking pan with parchment paper or foil, leaving an overhang on two opposite sides. Combine the butter, sugar, cocoa, and salt in a medium heat-proof bowl and... Medrick's method, you're going to set the bowl in a wide skillet of barely simmering water. Stir from time to time until the butter is melted and the mixture is smooth and hot enough that you want to remove your finger fairly quickly after dipping it in to test. Or, Deb's method, you can melt the butter with cocoa in a microwave too. Sounds a little bit less risky for your finger. For both methods, you're going to set the bowl aside briefly until the mixture is only warm, not hot. It looks fairly gritty at this point, but don't fret. It smooths out once the eggs and flour are added. You're going to stir in the vanilla with a wooden spoon, add the eggs one at a time, stirring vigorously after each one. And when the batter looks thick, shiny, and well blended, add the flour and stir until you cannot see it any longer. Then beat vigorously for 40 strokes with a wooden spoon or a rubber spatula. Stir in the nuts if using, and then spread evenly in the lined pan. Bake until a toothpick plunged into the center emerges slightly moist with batter. 20 to 25 minutes is Metric's suggestion, but it took me at least 10 minutes longer to get them set. So let cool completely on a rack. I go further and throw mine in the fridge or freezer for a while. It's the only way I can get them to cut with clean lines. Then you're going to lift up the ends of the parchment or foil liner and transfer the brownies to a cutting board and then cut into 16 or 25 squares. The intro to this best cocoa brownies is that people who really, really love chocolate are dubious about cocoa. Even if they buy the most resplendent cocoa in the world, baking things with it that taste as rich or as treats with bars of 70% is a rarity. Thus, if you told me about a killer recipe for cocoa brownies a couple weeks ago, I wouldn't have believed you. But since then, two things have happened. First is that I had one. It was a tiny square scattered among 
with tiers of homemade marshmallows near a puddle of homemade hot fudge sauce and caroseled around a cocoa nib buckwheat panna cotta at 10 Downing last week. That's nothing short of blew my mind because did you know that the opposite of sweet in the world of chocolate needn't necessarily be bitter? Sometimes it's just not very sweet, period. So you can really taste the chocolate. It was awesome, all of it. The second is that I looked up a well-regarded cocoa brownie recipe and the description did me in. Your cocoa is not listed as a compromise. It's something to use just because you might already have it in your pantry. Something shelf-stable for a brownie mix, longevity, etc. But as an intention. The result is something that could convert those that believe that all the roads to fudgy, dark, and rich brownies must be paved bricks of tempered chocolate. And now I'm going to say something that will surely make a good lot of you turn away from this recipe and never look back, although you shouldn't. I believe these brownies will be especially beloved by people who enjoy box mix brownies. They share a moist, dense crumb, though fortunately for me at least, who finds the taste of box brownies to staggering lack, not a flavor, because the only wet ingredients are eggs, butter, and vanilla. So, you know, if you were feeling generous enough to share, which may not be your first reaction, go ahead and give these a try. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller.